Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes together. As you're turning there, I'd like to give you just a few updates. Um, first, some of you may already know this, but uh, Crisis, Pregnancy of Tide, Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater, CPC, um, has had to cancel their annual benefit, um, their banquet they usually do about around this time of year, which is a huge blow. Um, I just want to bring this to our attention to remember that these are our partners in the gospel. Had lunch with Toby the other day, and I wish everyone could have lunch with Toby, or maybe just with me, but he just like spilled out that he's not concerned only about saving physical lives. He says this line, he says, if we just save physical lives, these, these babies, and, and we never give them the gospel, we're just propping up dead people. And that's exactly right. The heartbeat at CPC is that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward. I'm telling you this because they're not having their banquet as usual this year, which makes their ability to get the word out and to raise funds and receive donations is limited. So I'm putting the word out for you to do two things. One is to pray for those who are working at CPC and regularly engaging with the world who's hurting as they give physically to these women and men who are struggling to know what to do in the midst of this crisis pregnancy. They're doing that. We pray for that. We pray that as they give the gospel, that they be faithful as they do it, and that God would save many through the, mer- the ministry of CPC. That's the first thing I'd ask you to pray for them. We should be doing that anyway, but just going to put it out there. We should pray. The second is that you would give to them, that you would help support the work that they are doing as a gospel light, both being the hands and feet of Jesus and proclaiming Christ's name. I can tell you this, as far as eternal dollar investments go, this is a good one. It's a good thing to invest in what God is doing at CPC. It's not the only way. I'd ask you, of course, to continue to giving to the church, to his means of proclaiming Christ throughout the world. But even through that, we see ministries like CPC take shape and form and bless our community around us. So I'd encourage those two, those two things, both to pray for them and also to give. Uh, second, um, we are doing surge school again. I've, I've said this before, but I want to make sure you hear me. I want to make sure you hear me say, I love you, and it's important for you to study the word, and this is a way to take advantage of your pastors sitting down, going through the storyline of the gospel, of the scriptures, and helping us walk through it helpfully. It'll be a great encouragement to your theology and also your practical Christian living. So I'll throw that out there one more time. Talk to me or Jordan, who'll be running it, or check it out on Realm, that's fine. Just one more time there before the month of September's over. I want to give everyone the opportunity. And third, just a kind of a family deal. Um, you guys need to keep praying for Janet Weber. Uh, keep praying. As, uh, I don't have any special updates or anything like that. I'm just reminding us that uh, they're waiting on this baby um, and trying to be patient uh, and hoping. There's a lot of anxiety, of course, that comes along with that and care Pray for two things. Pray for a healthy baby, that God would bring that baby to, uh, to be born healthy, but also for 
their hearts as well in the midst of this. Think about that as we love one another, that we would lift them up. Their hearts wouldn't be anxious, but rather trusting God in the midst of this. All right, I think that's good for announcements right now. Let's go ahead and take a look at our text together. We are in Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and then we'll pray. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, this is the word of God. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Let's pray together. Lord, you are very great. We don't say this as fakers hoping that somehow you'll figure out our incantation in words. No, Lord, we, we plead with the rest of the world to look upon your beauty and glory. You are great, and we say it through our songs. We say it through our attempts at broken hearts so that we would fear and love you. We ask that our good deeds would be those that are motivated by true fruit of your Holy Spirit. We ask this morning now as we come to your text that you would break stony, hard hearts. I ask that you would help us to respond to the word of the gospel with repentance and faith. Would you call those who do not know you to yourself today? And I pray for your people as they sit, as we sit together under the word, that we'd worship and exalt you. We thank you for your great love and we ask that you would teach us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, amen. Amen, yeah. I can, uh, I can think back about my time as a, as a young man when I first moved to Virginia Beach. When I first did it, one of my first real jobs was to work at a small Christian school, and I was a PE teacher, a gym class teacher. So I did health and gym. That was kind of the schedule, because those of you know, uh, for those that don't do, they teach. For those that don't teach, they teach gym class. You know, So that was my lot uh, while I was going through grad school. I worked there. And when I did, I, I could not believe, because it was my first time living in the South, I could not believe how many people blatantly took the Lord's name in vain. Like, it was nothing to say, oh my God, as literally a byword. 
and as you could, I mean, I, I grew up in the north, both in, in, uh, in Ontario, Canada, and then in Pennsylvania, went to school in uh, northern Wisconsin. So this was not normal for me. Only sinners said, oh my God, um, who would be so flippant to use this term. It bothered me quite a bit, uh, again, to hear, especially students, just flippantly say, oh my God, this, oh my God, that. And I regularly would address it in my classroom. I was like kind of an annoying teacher because I'd be like, I don't want to hear you saying, oh my God. And then I would kind of go off on them. I can remember a specific time, though. Um, we were out in the soccer field. We were working. It was a gym class. And these, these, these boys, young, young men, continued to use this over and over again. And I said, if it happens one more time, boys, everybody, if it happens one more time, you'll be on the line, and we are going to sprint for the rest of this class. Uh, a few seconds later, it wasn't even a minute. I'm not even kidding. A few seconds later, a kid had like missed a ball or something like that or said something, and again, it popped out, not even thinking about it. Oh, my God, blah, 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 just flippantly like this. Dude, I blow my whistle. Everyone's on the line, and sure enough, I made them run, sprint, back, forth, back, forth, sprint, sprint, sprint. I mean, they was the most tired they had been in all of gym class as they shrunk in the fear of the Lord or unfortunately, maybe how I took it into my hands. Now, I'll admit that that may not have been the best course of action for me. It was kind of my, if you know the, the priest Phineas in, in old Israel, kind of like my Phineas moment. Um, but I, uh, I know that may not have been the best way. But I didn't know what to do about the lack of concern for the name of our God, especially among those who said they were Christians. It bothered me so deeply. I'm not saying I did everything right. In fact, I'm sure if I look back on it now, I could have probably done something that would have been a little bit more effective. But it does bring up the fact that these young men did not take the name of the Lord seriously. There was in them no concern for flippantly saying this in some sort of way that there may be some sort of reaction to an almighty God. This is just one area uh, in our culture and speech, but it's indicative of a far greater problem in our society. Our society does not close their shops on Sundays. We know that. They, they take the Lord's name in vain. Um, they live as though there, there is a God who does not exist. Or if he does, he doesn't really care how we live. Now, you know, our culture's latest obsession is the denial of our God-given gender, the things that he makes, as though somehow we are able to choose to do something that God has made us and choose something other than this. Boys, you can be girls if you want to. Girls, you can be boys if you want to. Again, this, this flagrant idea that somehow I am the maker of my own gender. Just pushing back as though God does not exist. Whether we know it or not, this is an attack on God's perfect design for each and every one of us. Uh, I, I want to be saying something very clearly here. I, I'm not making a big deal out of all these things as though somehow we are exempt from sin like this. And we'll get there eventually. But we do see that, the, that our culture so easily comes down on this saying, Lord, you, you must have messed it up. This is who I am. I want to be something else, and I'm going to try to defy you. When someone does says that, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. We know that to be true. It's utterly ridiculous. But more fundamentally, it's arrogance. It's pushing back against the almighty God as though we are someone to mess with the God of the universe. There are other ways that we evidence this lack of concern. Let me remind you that 
the upcoming 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade is in January 2022. It's really not popular to talk about abortion right now, but we need to, guys. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It is the snuffing out of real life inside a mother's womb. If we know this, and we know what God says to be true about image bearers, we should be in fear and trembling. This is not a small matter. Uh, it, 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 you know, for, for nearly 50 years now, we've done this decision in our, in our courts, and we've patted our consciences thinking that since we put it in terms of a woman's right to choose, and us Christians being like, yeah, I guess everyone has the right to choose, we need to be really careful about this, what's actually going on. A time to kill is something that we all understand in our context. But to kill a child before it ever sees the light of day, man, this action shows us that we do not value what God values. I realize that my introduction to this sermon here this morning is not a pleasant one. Uh, you may be a little uncomfortable and wonder how in the world this has anything to do with Ecclesiastes 3. We'll get there. But I want to establish the very simple idea that the world does not acknowledge God. To the world, I sound like an absolute fool this morning. Who does he think he is saying these things? He's so closed-minded. He goes back and relies on something ages and ages ago that someone used to prop up some idea of some deity somewhere. Guys, we live in a culture that chooses to defy God. And if you were to take a general survey of most people, I believe you'd find that very few people were willing to say, let alone prove, that they fear the Lord. This is a basic problem for all of humanity. It's something that we regularly struggle with doing ourselves. It's something that the world refuses to do. In our text today, Kohelet, this the one who assembles people to hear wisdom, this man, is going to take us from a shared experience in life, which we all know about, is going to take us through a philosophical and theological reflection about that experience, and then he is going to call us to fear God. The very thing that God has called us to do from the very beginning. Go ahead and take a look. Our text begins with a classic poem about life and time. You see the word time, 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 over and over and over again. Verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. It's often used, this, this passage, we've probably heard it, again, we've talked about it in other scenarios, but we've probably heard it talked about maybe at specific times of the year, maybe the, the new year when new times are kind of turning over, or birthdays, or maybe the birth of a child, or perhaps even when someone dies at a funeral. It, 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 we talk about these extreme ends of the human experience, all these things that we kind of sit back and look and think about time. It seems appropriate for all of these things, these big life changes when we need to stop and consider time and how extreme these actions can be and how it's often necessary to fit into all of life. The poem here is probably one of the most popular, one of the most quoted biblical poems and sections for unbelievers to quote without, throughout the world. If, of course, they think about it as ancient wisdom. They can even make sense of it today and think this is worthwhile. I'd be glad to quote this. I mean, really, it's, it is quite beautiful. It's this beautiful back and forth and this rhythm of showing these two extremes and how God continually works through. And no one is really offended because the word God isn't mentioned here. No one's offended when you read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. 
In fact, like I said before, the birds, the, uh, the, the band, used these lyrics to turn their song, Turn, 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 to catapult them to number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1965. I mean, Bible was blaring, right? Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, blaring through all the radios, through all the clubs. This is what was being heard. The poem is not offensive in and of itself. It's used in many different groups, both believing people and secular people. They use it for the same thing, to recount the ongoing rhythms of life under the heaven. Listen to it again. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what was planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, time to love, time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now, conventional wisdom takes these extremes and calls us to be comforted in the midst of all of our chaotic lives and kind of remind us that there are people that have gone before you that have seen what's happened, nothing new is under the sun, it's okay. Sometimes it's even used to, to justify certain actions, these ideas like, oh, if it shows up on this list, the Bible is telling us it's okay to do. And so we recognize that it kind of leaves the morality out of it for the unbeliever and says, well, I just take this and I do what I want to with it. There's a time for everything. Now, better than that, the more Christian wisdom comes along and says, well, yes, there is a time for everything. But our job is to use God-given wisdom to discern when and how these things should be done properly. I like that. It's pretty good. It's better. But that message doesn't actually come from the text of Ecclesiastes. So maybe we shouldn't just jump to that as a conclusion here. Uh, to properly understand this poem, we need to consider it in light of the context so far that's happened, and also specifically the explanation that's going to be given to us in verses 9 through 15, right after it. When we first read this section, and if we've read chapter 1 before, we will immediately see that he is reaching back to tell the same story that he did back in verse 4 through 7. You remember this in chapter 1. You remember he says this, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The first poem we saw was actually about nature. This is how he kicks off the whole book, right? Generations of humans and what the sun does and the wind and the water. And he caused us to look out and recognize the endless cycles within the natural world. But in chapter 3, we're going to see something similar. It kind of rhymes with what he said before. But in this poem, we get a presentation about our own experiences in life. I mean, he talks about death and talks about life. It talks about these soaring emotions, and these emotions go down to the depths. It talks about everyday actions and kind of everything in between all of it. 
the poem illustrates for us what we saw he said in verse 1. Verse 1 tells us what he's trying to say in his thesis, but in verses 2 through 8, he illustrates it. Verse 1 said, for everything there is a season uh, and a time for every matter under heaven. Verses 2 through 8 don't give us a list of commandments. You're not going to hear me say, so go live, so go tear, so go gather stones. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's actually bringing in, in front of us like what we all know. This is a common human experience. It's a collection of the things that we do at one time or another throughout our lives. So in other words, what he's doing, he's kind of giving us or laying out the common ground that we all have. Everyone, if they at least have been on the planet for a little bit of time, understands, if they thought about it, that each of these things has its place within the life cycle of humanity. There are times when mourning and tears and a tearing of clothes is the right thing to do. There are other times when it's the right thing to do to laugh and feast and dance. There are times when rebuilding and regathering supplies is what needs to be done to build and to bring stability and flourishing to a community. There are other times when it is right to destroy buildings, to lay level playing fields, and justly bring others to account for their wicked actions. There are times when embracing is the wrong thing to do. We understand that in our own COVID moment. We would not embrace one in that way. There's a time for us to not embrace. And yet maybe the same person after they've healed, we would gladly and joyously embrace. We understand he's talking about the warp and woof of life and how it works. This poem is helping us understand that all these things have their place within the human experience. But it also does something that we should pay attention to. Two things I want to point out. First, it shows that all of these things are really out of our hands. If we were to kind of talk about this, we wouldn't know uh, when this happens or when that happens. A lot of it happens to us. We don't control them. Neither, we do know, neither do we know when they will come to us. Almost as if we are finite creatures inside of an infinite creation under his control. But there's a second thing we need to notice here. We don't get it unless we read the next verse in verse 9. I want you to take a look at verse 9. Real short. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now, I'll admit that at first glance, this verse seems out of place, like almost a brand new thing. This is an old question that he's asked two other times in our text. If you remember, we saw it back in 1-3 in the old poem, and then we actually saw it at the end of chapter 2 as well in 2.22. But if it's true that we should, if it's true, then we should probably listen to it and try to make sure we understand how it was used the first two times. Remember how I use it in chapter 1. Look back there at verse 3. Kohelet is asking us, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And then the rest of the poem goes on to tell us through these natural cycles that there is nothing that we can gain under the sun. It leaves us at this place of no gain, no sum total gain at all. It's almost as though it's a wash. Similarly in chapter 2, look at verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Then verse 23 says, For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So he's asking that question, what do you gain from all your toil? Nothing. Nothing. I've already, I've already established that over and over again, guys. 
What do, what, what do you establish from it? What do you get from it? Nothing. Chapters 1 and chapter 2 are the answer of a pretty quick, clear question. We understand the answer by now. When he asks, what does the worker gain from his toil, he's using rhetoric. We know the answer. It's nothing. Uh, toil gets us nowhere. This time he asks the question, though, after the poem. We saw it at the beginning of the poem last time. Now we're seeing it after the poem. And he does so because he's illustrating the same thing again. This poem is integral to our understanding. The poem presents everything by itself and then its counterpart, right? We have the two ends almost on every single thing. I wish I had seen this in my own, but I'll admit that I was reading a, one of us, a scholar on this and he pointed this out. I thought it was so helpful. He said this, did you notice how one time cancels out another? A time to be born and a time to die, nothing left. A time to plant our flowers in the spring and a time to pluck them up in the fall, nothing gained. A time to break down and a time to build up, nothing changed. I mean, what gain has the workers from their toil? The answer is absolutely nothing. This is a stunning observation. I mean, again, we, it's like the warp and woof of life, but I realize what he's coming out to say is that even here, within the human experience, we still end up saying, what is gained from all this toil? Not only is the timing out of our hands, but also in the end, it seems to all amount to nothing. It's at this point that our author turns to God to help explain what we are actually experiencing. Instead of leaving us, like in the first poem, in this place of despair and hopeless and crying out that this is all pointless, like he did in chapter 1, he helps us think about it properly through the lens of God's perspective. Look at verse 10. He says this, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Whoa, that's not despair. That's not crying out, hevel, vanity. It's like chasing out. No, no, he says it's beautiful in its time. He's talked about the business that God has given to him, to man. We know this already. But before, he talked about it quite negatively. In chapter 1, verse 13, take a look. He says it's an unhappy business God has given to man to be busy with. Then in chapter 2, uh, chapter two verse 26, he's the one that gathers and collects over and over. God is the one who gives the sinner the business to do this over and over again of gathering and collecting only to giving it to the one who pleases God. But here in chapter 3, we actually have, it seems like, a new perspective. It's not a negative thing, but rather a positive thing. He says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, we need to, to hone in on two things here in this statement. So stick with me. The first one is the word beautiful. Now, I like the way this sounds, and it's, it looks really good on a pillow, you know, as a, or Instagram post. It looks really good, but beautiful may not be the best way to describe the Hebrew word that's being used. It's a fine translation, but we get distracted by it. This is what I mean. It's not mainly talking about aesthetic beauty here. It is uh, mainly saying that God has made everything right or appropriate or properly in its time. Almost like a machine that when someone puts all the pieces together with wisdom and precision, it's a thing of beauty because it works properly. Yes, it certainly is beautiful, but the beauty emerges because it works appropriately, rightly. It fits together in the right way. This is what he is saying. God has made everything appropriate 
or right for its time. But there's a second thing I want you to see here. Now, this may be simple, uh, but it's going to carry us through the rest of the passage, so I think it's really important. In verse 11, he uses the word made. Not a big, scary, complex word, doesn't sound like, the word made. Now, to us, that's not a big deal, but I'll tell you right now, it is a big deal. Because what he's going to do is take this word and remind us of creation. What he is doing is saying, the one who has made, the one who has done all things. This word is asa in Hebrew. It means to do or to make. Uh, this will be important because you're going to hear it come up again and again in this passage. So you're going to see it either translated as make or made or do or done. Don't worry, I'll point it out when we get there. This is important though, again, it's still right for us to see this because we're realizing that he's using the word and we're starting to see that he's communicating something about the nature of our human experience. He's trying to bring us back to where it started, the design and how he is over all things. He's showing us that this life is not accidental. It's not futile. It's not absurd or pointless. In, in fact, there's a grand design and a grand goal of creation. And that goal and design comes from the one who made it. Very important here. But at this moment then, we kind of get snapped back into reality. Up to this point, things are feeling pretty good. We're like, oh man, I could share this passage with anybody and they kind of agree with it. This is great. This positive understanding and view of God, it's really good. But then we get to verse 11b. He says this, also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man, we're put right back in the, the seat of despair. You see what's going on? He's like, I've given you this capacity for eternity to know that there's a, there's a complete end way out there and there's a beginning way out there, but I can't grasp it. I can't understand it. I don't, I don't know how to place myself within this context. In chapter 2, verse 16, if you remember this last week, we felt the frustration of a person who knew that there was something more, but they were angry because it did not endure. What they experienced did not last for eternity. He said, For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. I mean, this guy knows that there's more going on. He wants life to endure. He wants it to matter. But he can't figure out why any of it actually matters. In verse 11 of chapter 3, we find out that it is God who put eternity into our hearts. It is God who gives us the capacity for things outside of our limited existence. But Kohelet explains that this awareness is limited by our creatureliness, by the fact that we were, here we go, made by the fact that someone else created us. Man understands that life is bigger than his 70 or 80 years. We know this. But our author tells us that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's that word again, done, that asa, to do or make. He's saying that we cannot find out what God has done or made from the beginning of creation to the end of all eternity. He's pointing out our position in light of the Creator. He's seeing and telling us who we are. 
He's trying to help us recognize rightly our place. He's trying to help us, created ones, get a past his capacity for eternity, but without experience and glory to understand what God has done, he's trying to help us understand, guys, we are not God. We are not God. Even if there's like other people who are a little bit better at being God than you are, we're not God. None of us are. None of us has the ability to see past these 70, 80 years and make sense of it. And from this perspective, he can now deliver two conclusions for us. This is what he does in verse 12 and verse 14. You're going to see he kind of kicks these verses off by saying, I perceived. This is like saying, I've concluded. Let me give you what you should do about these truths. We've kind of gone through the poem. We've seen it. We've talked about how God has put eternity in your hearts how you cannot actually know the beginning to the end, and there seems like it's, it's pointless, let me give you the good news about this. This is where he pivots. He's laid out the common experience of men under heaven. He's given us divine commentary on it, and now he tells us what we should do about it. He is giving us wisdom. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, does that, does that sound familiar to anybody if you are here last week? We've heard something like this before, right? Uh, look at the end of chapter 2, verses 24, 25, and 26. This is exactly what he has said before. It's not the same words, and that's actually important here, but he's told us this before. Here he's going to boil it down to foundational commands, two foundational commands that we'll see in verse 12. And then he's going to explain those by giving us verse 13, something that he's already established. The two very simple commands, be joyful and do good. Be joyful and do good, he says. The first command is a simple command to rejoice. Um, you understand this. It's not untethered, you know, command to go and be happy at whatever expense you can do. Again, it's not that Epicurean or hedonist understanding. It's like, just go have whatever fun, whatever expense you want to. No, we understand that rejoicing is tied to that which is worth rejoicing in. The second command, to do good, amazing, right? We've seen this word again, asa, to do or to make good. This isn't a blank check to go do whatever you think is good. No, we know that. It's a command to do or make good like your father who has made or done good in creation. There's no secular understanding of these words. These are to be translated through verse 13. What I mean is if you come to this passage and you say, be joyful, do good. There's a lot of unbelievers that are like, okay, I will do that. That sounds good. I can, I can go be joyful and I can do good. If I put my own categories together and my own definitions, I can do a lot of that stuff. But look at verse 13. Verse 13 grounds our understanding of rejoicing and doing good in what he has already told us. He says also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, we went through this last week. This is that mankind cannot find joy or pleasure in eating or drinking or work unless the Lord gives him the ability to do so. The perspective and understanding that these things are not gained to be held onto forever, but rather to be held loosely as gift, knowing that they will not be forever, but rather that there's something greater that's forever. 
The only way to have this ability, we found out though, he said this at the end of 24 to 5 and 6, is to please the Lord. This is the focus of our time together last week, to understand what he meant by this. And as we see here, he said this is the only way we have this ability. To those who please the Lord, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So eating and drinking and finding enjoyment and toil are from the hand of God. We are to pursue these things as gifts from God. We are to please God and enjoy these short days that we live here on earth. We're to rejoice in the gifts that God has given. We're to do good. Now, how are we to do good then? He says, well, I think there's a a tight connection to the fact that God has given us all these things. And now we are given, in a sense, the stuff to use to do good to those who are around us. Our stuff was never given to us, guys, so that we could somehow hold on to it or hoard it or put it in barns, but rather to use and to be that which helps us to do good to others as we rejoice and do good with what God has given to us. I mean, what a novel concept, right? That we'd use our wealth, our time, our brains, all of our resources for doing good for the sake of others and for the sake, most importantly, of God our Father. This is the first thing that he calls us to in verse 12 and 13. But there's more. Look at verse 14. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, Kohelet has come to the crux of his message. He's gotten it down. He's boiled it down finally to where we've got to listen. He told us what we should do in verses 12 through 13, but here he is going to tell us why. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. I mean, did you catch that verb again? He said that he perceived that whatever God does or makes, asa, whatever God does, whatever God makes, he's going to go back to this creational language again. He's giving credit where credit is due. Whatever uh, Whatever God's creational intent was, there is no changing it. You and I are not going to somehow flex his plans to change what he planned to do from eternity past. It will be forever. It can't be added to. It can't be taken away from. It cannot be changed. And so we recognize that the cycle has been set. Then what are we to do with this then? It seems fatalistic. Let's read on. Verse 14 again. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Who is in control of all this? Who's the one who is over all and has set the world in place in the cycle so that they will never skip a beat? Is mankind essentially free to do whatever he wants to? Is that the greatest good in all of humanity for for allowing man to do what he wants? Or is it true that God has done what God has done cannot be changed and that we are subjects in his kingdom called to worship the true king of all creation? Enjoy. He says that God has done all of this and even more than that, God has shown us this so that people would fear before him. This is fear in the sense of the ultimate being in the universe. 
we had a course seminar a few weeks ago, I guess it's a few months ago now, but um, Kirk talked about the fear of the Lord, the terrifying fear of the Almighty who has created and who will judge one day. This is wrapped up in this. There's also an incredible importance here that we would see an awe and reverence and a respect for who God is to the point that the right response of this is a worshipful, trembling fear and obeisance paid to him and him alone. Worship we're talking about. This is the proper response when we realize that he has set every cycle within creation. And this really is the aim of Kohelet's wisdom. Not only here, but if you know anything, have been reading along or have been reading all the way to the end, chapter 12 makes this exact point. This is the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. The best and most glorious thing that you could ever do is bow to him. So I'll encourage you, hear him, Christian. We need to hear that this is the very same thing that he said to us about the natural cycles. In chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he said, What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which is said? See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. But here, instead of despair at the end of this, instead of despair, it's a triumph. The believer's hope is grounded in the unchanging character of God. He, he, he doesn't go like the unbeliever and despises existence and cry out, Hevel. Instead, he cries out, Lord, you are God. I am not. Praise be to your name. I realize that you are over all these things. There we go. He finishes the verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. In the final verse here, uh, in the final verse, we have a summation of the situation overall. God is in full control of time and place and season. The things that are happening right now are already set in God's design. The things that are yet to come are already set in God's design. And the things we have pursued and tried to figure out and we've not been able to grasp those things that are driven away God alone seeks these things and finds them. If this is truly then how God works in this world, we are left to make a decision about how we will then act, how we will live. Now, perhaps we haven't committed the sin of abortion. Perhaps we've even made a statement against transgender movement. Perhaps we're not ones that take the Lord's name in vain. But I will ask you rightly, do you fear the Lord? Perhaps you've been like me, entered into careless conversation, theological debate even, about God, dissecting him as though he's some sort of science experiment, and then living as a functional atheist. Do I fear the Lord? Perhaps you don't think it's a big deal to partake of the Lord's Supper when there is sin between you and a brother. Ah, that's all right. We'll just work it out. Let it happen. Do you fear the Lord? Perhaps we allow our material needs and our earthly ambitions to trump our eternal needs and our heavenly ambitions. I mean, will time alone with God in prayer win the day where you get some things done on your list? Will gathering together with God's people on the Lord's day win? Or will you put some other pursuit together before him on a Sunday morning? I believe we have taken God too lightly. The one who has made and designed all 
and continues over all, the one who is in complete control. If he truly does make everything right and appropriate within its time, if he really does give true meaning to life, if he alone can give us joy and knowledge and wisdom, we must fear him. And I just want to make sure you understand, this is not some sort of strange religion of self-loathing or penance or somehow beating ourselves up and we want to really be sad and morose and, 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 and have a bad time and that's somehow how we're going to fear God. No, 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 no. Remember what he already told us to do. He's the one that told us to go rejoice and do good. This is what it means to fear the Lord. So I'd ask you, what is your joy based on? What do you live week in, week out? What's your joy all about? Is it stuff that you're fulfilling your own pleasures here? Or do we have something that's based on true joy in him? Have, have you looked to do good to others? How have you made it your effort to take your resources, your time, your, your, your money, all these different things to actually go and do good to others around us for God's glory? Here's another asked question. Do you hate your work? Why do you hate your work? Why do you hate this? Or do you eat the, anxious, the bread of anxious toil, as Psalm 127 tells us? I'd encourage you to rejoice in God and do good. It's very freeing in one sense, but we realize that the way that we understand that is through all of what he's given to us in Scripture. Now, there's one more thing that we ought to consider then, since we stand here in a different position than the original readers of Ecclesiastes did. Something else has happened. Since God is the author of all things and does all things in the right time, we know that in the fullness of time, Christ was born. That Christ came, lived perfect, righteously. That he died, that he rose again, that he ascended to the Father. And he gave himself so that we might be saved for his own people. It was Jesus who displayed the glory of God the Father through his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father's right hand. And he taught us to love and fear the Father. In Matthew 10, 26 through 33, we have this beautiful teaching. Jesus teaches us not to fear those who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can kill the soul. We should not miss what he says in verse 32. Listen to this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. We know what it means to fear the Lord, guys. Something greater has come. The Messiah himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take the name gladly as Christians, ones who are followers of Jesus Christ and would die or live for him and him alone. If this is true, it shapes our entire lives. Not only do we look at all what the Old Testament tells us, but also now what he's, he's proclaimed to us in himself and called us to do throughout all the epistles and the rest of Scripture. We know what this means to live, to do good, to rejoice, founded in the fear of the Lord. So I'd call us, for those that do not know this Savior, there's a common experience that is to man. We understand that. I'm giving you the commentary that the Bible tells us is true. Would you believe the gospel? Jesus himself tells us that through him you can know the Father. Would you repent of your sin and fall to him and him alone today? Brothers and sisters, we're called to live in the fear of the Lord. 
not to live as though what we have around us is something that we should fear or look for the joy that's around us, but rather look eternally to our God. So I call us then to fear God and keep his commandments. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. Oh God, we fall to you and ask you to do the work that must be done in our hearts. Lord, we are not power, we won't have it in us, in ourselves, to rejoice and to do good, to fear the Lord. It must be a work of yours. So we rely on your grace. And as we teach this truth, and as your spirit works in us, we trust you and you alone, and we pursue knowing you. We pursue fear of the Lord truly, which is the beginning of wisdom. And we ask, God, that you would bless us with wisdom and joy and knowledge. May Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.